Undercover Boss was a show, I think it ran on CBS. I don't know, if is it still on? Um, we don't watch a whole lot of TV as it's happening. But Undercover Boss ran on network TV for a long, long time. And for those of you who don't know what it is because you don't watch um, television or you live under a rock, um, Undercover Boss was a show where a CEO of, a, of some major company that you would have heard of, things like... Um, waste management, which is a massive garbage disposal and waste collection company. Like, they go undercover, they step out of their, like, executive boardrooms and their corner offices, and they take on the role of what looks like a, the everyday worker in their company, um, an entry-level position, typically, or somebody collecting garbage, as is the case was Undercover Boss. And the purpose of the show is, is several-fold. One is it, it kind of gives the, the CEO an inside look as to what morale looks like in his company and how he can make things better for his employees. It also gives him or her a window into uh, the lives of the people working that really make the companies that they oversee actually work. And there's something really, really gratifying about watching it because you get in touch with people's humanity, like people who are struggling in some entry-level positions, like the CEO ends up blessing, usually with scholarships for kids and so on. And um, at the end of the show, the undercover boss would reveal who they really were and bless those employees tremendously. It's, it's a fun show to watch um, or just have on in the background. But as we step into our sermon today, and as we step into our text today, we're going to see in Genesis 18 that God goes undercover a little bit um, and steps into, like really, literally steps into the lives of Abraham and Sarah in a very ordinary way. And what we're going to see in this sermon and in this text today is that like the empty spaces of our lives are invitations to press into who God is. And that what we believe about God will shape the way we relate to him and relate to the world around us. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to Genesis chapter 18 or take out your phone or whatever you, you use. And um, we're, gonna, we're not gonna read the whole passage at once. It's kind of long. We'll read it as with our corresponding points. And our first point is God visits. God visits. Let's read verses one through eight. Hear the word of the Lord. The Lord appeared to Abraham at the oaks of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance of his tent during the heat of the day. He looked up and he saw three men standing near him. When he saw them, he ran from the entrance of the tent to meet them bowed to the ground and said, My Lord, if I have found favor with you, please do not go on past your servant. Let a little water be brought that you may wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. I'll bring a bit of bread so that you may strengthen yourselves. This is why you have passed your servant's way. Later you can continue on. Yes, they replied, do as you have said. So Abraham hurried into the tent and said to Sarah, Quick, knead three measures of fine flour and make bread. Abraham ran to the herd and got a tender choice calf. He gave it to a young man who hurried to prepare it. Then Abraham took curds of milk as well as the calf that he had prepared and he set them before the men. He served them as they ate under the tree. 
Genesis just keeps throwing weird story after weird story at us. Um, Abraham is taking a little break from doing whatever it was that he was doing. It's hot outside. The sun is just beating down on him. So he, he sets up some shade. He sits outside of his tent, and he's just relaxing, a little reposo, a little siesta. And that's when he notices three men kind of appear before him, and he goes towards them, bows down, and then invites them to dinner. Now, you may be thinking as you read this, that's kind of weird, like to just randomly invite strangers into your house because they were passing through. But in the culture of the time, this, this was a really like, important feature of it. Hospitality is an important part of Middle Eastern culture, and it actually still is to this day. If you, I remember um, considering travel to certain parts of the Middle East, and I'd looked up um, country profiles in the State Department, and they highlight, like, if you go here, don't be surprised if someone invites you in for dinner, a stranger that you don't know. And in America, we're like, that's weird. Do they want to kill me? Like, but in Middle Eastern culture, that's, that's actually fairly common. And here, Abraham is extending this hospitality to people he doesn't know, or at least people he doesn't appear to know. And it's not even clear that Abraham even realizes that one of these men is a representation of God himself. And I think it's really interesting because here we're kind of pressing in on the character of God again. And one of the things about God that keeps showing up over and over and over again is that he is near to us, that he is not far away. He is with his people, journeying alongside of them. And here he is, journeying, journeying alongside of Abraham. And this closeness, this, this fact that God is knowable and that he can be known and understood is theologians call the imminence of God, that he is close to us and that we can actually get to know him. And that here we see Abraham and God together. God is close to them. And Abraham, at first at least, doesn't even appear to realize it. And I think it's just interesting for us that God's nearness isn't dependent upon our perception of his nearness. That God is close to Abraham and Sarah whenever they might not have even realized that it was actually God right in front of them. Augustine once said, and I may have said this before, but it's worth repeating, that God is more near to us than we are to ourselves. And if that sounds really confusing to you, it kind of is. What does it mean? It means that God is closer to who you are. He understands who you are more than you understand who you are. He is more in touch with you at the core of who you are than you even understand. Like, I don't understand why I think certain things, feel certain things, like react certain ways, but God knows all of them. He is more near to us, and he is God. And no matter our perception of his closeness, whether we feel like he's far or if we feel him really, really close, he is near to his people. And Abraham and Sarah in the middle of this are being treated by the presence of God. He is near, so near that he shows up for lunch. So Abraham goes to Sarah, says, Sarah, we got company. I need you to whip up some food. 
But look at his instructions. He, he told the men when they got here, here, can I just fix you some bread and give you some water? And they're like, sure, let's do that. And then Abraham goes to Sarah and says in verse six, quick, knead three measures of fine flour and make bread. Then Abraham ran to the herd and got a tender choice calf, gave it to the young man who hurried to prepare it. And then Abraham took curds of milk as well as the calf that he had prepared and set them before the men. What happened to like simple bread? And if you wonder if Sarah overheard, she's like, you offered them bread and now we're throwing them a feast. Abraham throws a banquet for the people who are visiting him. And one of those visitors is God himself and God eats with Abraham. You see, what you believe about God shapes how you relate to God. Do you believe that God is close to you? Like right now, not theoretically, like God could be close to you, but that his presence is with you if you are trusting in Christ, is with you right now. That he is not far away. Or if you kind of bought into the lie that God exists, and you would ne- might not ever say this, but that God exists and he is far off, he kind of is just arms crossed watching the world go around. That's deism. That's not biblical Christianity. God is close to you. And in spite of whatever happened with Abraham and Sarah and their messed up lives, God would be close to him. He sees us in our wandering and he's near to us in silence and pain in the mundane parts of life. God shows up for lunch. Abraham throws a feast with the help of Sarah which brings us to our next point, Sarah laughs. Let's read verses nine to 15. Where's your wife, Sarah? They asked him. There in the tent, he answered. The Lord said, I will certainly come back to you in about a year's time and your wife, Sarah, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance of the tent behind him. Abraham and Sarah were old and getting on in years. Sarah had passed the age of childbearing, so she laughed to herself. After I'm worn out and my Lord is old, why have delight? But the Lord asked Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? Saying, can I really have a baby when I'm old? Is anything impossible for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will come back to you. And in about a year, she will have a son. Sarah denied it. I didn't laugh, she said, because she was afraid. But he replied, no, you did laugh. The story takes kind of an interesting turn. Everyone is enjoying some good old baby cow and some curds. And one of them asks, where's your wife, Sarah? Which is interesting because if I'm Abraham, I'm like, huh, how did he know that I had a wife named Sarah? Because the text gives us nothing that says that Abraham ever introduced them. For this whole time, they've been outside the tent and Sarah's been inside. And one of them goes, the Lord goes, hey, where's your wife? And you don't wonder if Abraham didn't know who was in front of him, if he's not like, God's appeared to me once before. He showed up to Hagar. What's going on now? We see, and Abraham's like, well, she's inside. And where's Sarah? She's kind of listening. You know, the tent's cracked and she's, got her ear to the door, and she hears the Lord make a pronouncement that she's gonna have a baby. And she chuckles to herself, kind of like disbelief 
a bit of incredulity from, from Sarah. She says, after I'm worn out and old, will I have delight? Can you feel Sarah's heart a little bit in all of this? Like, it's easy to come down on her, I feel like, in some of these stories, but I think we're invited to, to see things from her perspective. She, she has not had an experience with God. Picked up, moved, like taken somewhere. Her husband's like, hey, you're gonna have a baby. Our descendants are gonna be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And she's like, well, here's my slave girl. Maybe that's the way. That doesn't work out. Slave girl gets an appearance from God. And now years have passed again. Like, like we're talking over 20 years have passed and she is still just like, really? This is gonna happen? She laughs, scoffs a little bit. And we've all heard promises that we didn't think were gonna come true, right? Like every election cycle, like politicians on both sides of the aisle make some grandiose promise and you're like, yeah, sure, uh-huh. Yep, tell me more. We'll believe it when I see it. And I think Sarah is feeling this a bit. So she scoffs. But God sees Sarah. We learned last week that God sees Hagar, and now God sees Sarah. She sees her pain. She sees the fact that she's old and that there's this promise and it seems impossible. But the Lord responds, why did Sarah laugh, saying, can I really have a baby when I'm old? And then he says this, is anything impossible for the Lord? God sees Sarah. And Sarah now is invited to place her faith in this God. And Sarah herself is getting this personal encounter with the God who is near, the God who saw her in her affliction, the God who saw her in her barrenness, the God who saw her when she couldn't have kids anymore because that phase of life is long gone. Sarah's in her 80s. And he shows up. He sees her. In that her doubts, God also sees, right? Because she's still in the tent and Abraham and the three men are talking outside and Abraham, God says to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? And if Sarah's still listening in the tent, she's like, oh, he heard me or he knows. And that even though God has been silent in Sarah's life, he is working. You see, Sarah was invited to believe in this moment, to have her moment with God and to place her faith that God would do exactly as he said. They had tried taking matters into their own hands and it did not work. In this whole unlikely story of a childless 90-some-year-old man having kids as numerous as the star in the sky in this, this, this biologically, in this biological story about a, a woman who's too old to have birth, this unlikely story is impossible from everyone that would have known Abraham and Sarah. What, she can't have kids, she's too old. Abraham's like 90-some years old. It's impossible, but with God, it is not. It is not impossible. And that's one of the big statements of our text this morning. And what we believe about God shapes the way we relate to him.
And if we believe that nothing is too impossible for him, we can have faith that he'll follow through on what he says. And now God is asking Abraham and Sarah, is anything too impossible for me? And the question that he sets before Abraham and Sarah is I think the question he sets before us, is anything too impossible for him? Because this is the God you and I are invited to believe. What if we believed we had a God who could do impossible things? What are the things in your life that if someone came to you and said, you know, God, God could work this change in your life. Like you could get victory over this sin. What area of your life, if someone came to you and said that this could happen, that you'd scoff and be like, I've been dealing with that for years. Or what if, what if someone said, you know, I know that there's a, there's a person in your life that's really difficult for you, but I know that God can change their hearts. Would we scoff and be like, I don't know. Or your marriage, I know it feels like it's in the dumps and it is hard to get out of whatever pit you find yourself in and it seems impossible and that like even suggesting that it could change feels like it never would. But what if we church believe that we have a God who does impossible things because that is the God of the Bible, the God who, who does what is impossible and he does that and is pronouncing that he will do that in the story of Abraham and Sarah. And listen, I'm not saying that we embrace some sort of like prosperity theology that says if we just believe enough that God will make our lives easy and, and pain-free and that everything will go away. I'm just saying that if God says that he can do impossible things, we should probably believe that God can do impossible things because that's the God of the Bible. Because we have a God who, who literally, Jesus was dead, like no pulse, like no heartbeat, no lungs, like deflated, body starting to decompose, but those lungs filled with air again and a tomb was empty. That's our God. And that's the God we're invited to trust in. In spite of our circumstances, And God was inviting Abraham and Sarah to trust him too. He's a God that can do impossible things and we're invited to approach him that way. Because you see, what you think about God, the way you think about God will shape the way you relate to him. God sees Sarah. And there's something else that I can't help but be fascinated by in this text. And it's, it's not the main point of the text by any means, but I think it's worth saying. God shows up to Abraham. And Abraham's sitting outside, wife's inside, and by all external appearances, Abraham has it going on. Got little Ishmael running around playing. And then like Abraham brings out this ridiculous feast of food, the spread. It's like the best charcuterie you've ever seen with cheese curds, which doesn't sound great, but it is. All on a plate. And, and it's like, here, all the external appearances look really, really good. But God sees behind it. And I cannot be comforted by that. 
that in the middle of Abraham and Sarah's just kind of doing what they were supposed to do, opening up their home, showing hospitality, God saw past all that and saw their deepest level of need. God sees past the fronts we put on. God sees past our religious expressions, our doing good, our faithfulness when it's hard. And I can't help but be encouraged by Abraham and Sarah that in their waiting, and they're just going about what they should be doing, that God shows up. How you think about God shapes the way you relate to him. He is more bigger, more big, and more gracious than we could imagine. Sarah denies her laughter. She's afraid. But God corrects her. No, you did laugh. And that might seem like a harsh correction, but what God was doing is he was restoring her. God visits, Sarah laughs. And then finally, Abraham intercedes. We'll read from verse 16 to the end of the passage now. The men got up from there and looked, over, looked out over Sodom, and Abraham was walking with them to see them off. Then the Lord said, should I hide what I am about to do from Abraham? Abraham is to become a great and powerful nation and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will command his children and his house after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. This is how the Lord will fulfill to Abraham what he promised him. Then the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is immense and their sin is extremely serious. I will go down to see if what they have done justifies the cry that has come up to me. If not, I will find out. The men turned from there and went towards Sodom while Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Abraham stepped forward and said, will you really sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away instead of sparing the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people who are in it? You could not possibly do such a thing to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. You could not possibly do that won't the judge of the whole earth do what is just? The Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. And Abraham answered, since I have ventured to speak to my Lord, even though I am dust and ashes, suppose the 50 righteous lack five. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? He replied, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Then he spoke to him again, suppose 40 are found there. He answered, I will not do it on account of 40. Then he said, let my Lord be not angry and I will speak further. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Then he said, since I have ventured to speak to my Lord, suppose 20 are found there. He replied, I will not destroy it on account of 20. Then he said, let my Lord be not angry and I will speak one more time. Suppose 10 are found there. He answered, I will not destroy it on account of 10. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he departed, and Abraham returned to his place. Takes an interesting turn passage. It feels like a hard right-hand turn, and we just kind of go in a completely different direction, and the men look out over Sodom, and that's where God asks a question. He says, should I hide what I'm about to do from Abraham? Abraham is to become a great and powerful nation. 
And then he says, for I've chosen him that, so that he will command his children and his house after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. It's a weird passage after, we, after the, the lunch meal. And we see a couple different things. First, we see that this passage is a test before Abraham. Would he believe that God is a God of justice? And then God says that he, he chose Abraham so that like those who followed after him might do what is right and just. Would Abraham be a person that stood for justice? So he kind of puts that out there before him. And then second, we see the closeness of Abraham to God. God lets Abraham in on his plans. So not only was it a test, but God was showing that Abraham was close to him and that he was chosen by him. Have you ever had someone share privileged information with you? Someone shares something personal, it's, it is a bit of a privilege. They let you into their space, maybe, or like maybe in your company, you're told, hey, so-and-so is gonna happen. You're not allowed to tell anybody right now. We're gonna acquire a new company. I don't know. Someone shares privileged information with you that makes you feel pretty good. And it kind of shows that you're trustworthy with that information. And here's God letting Abraham in on what he's about to do. God gives Abraham this kind of access. And I know you're thinking, man, that'd be kind of nice, right? God, here's what's up. And tells you what's up, and then you can respond accordingly. But, I, but as I say that, like we need to remember Jesus. Like the eternal son of God has that kind of access to the Father all of the time. And what does it say in the Bible, but that he lives to intercede for us. And then you as a Christian, given the spirit of God living inside of you, you have access to God and access to what he's up to in the world. The Bible that you hold in your hands is a disclosure of who God is and what he's doing in the world. And if we believe and take God at his word, that, that this is who he is, that as he's revealed himself is as he is, then the way we believe about him will shape the way that we relate to others. It shaped Abraham, so much so that he's willing to speak up. See, God brings his plan to judgment to Sodom and Gomorrah, and Abraham's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Verse 24, will you really sweep it away instead of sparing the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people who are in it? You couldn't possibly do such a thing to kill the righteous with the wicked treating the righteous and the wicked alike. You couldn't possibly do that. And then the second major statement of, the, of this chapter, won't the judge of the whole earth do what is just? Abraham knows God, and he knows that he is a God who does what is just, and he believes it, and it shapes the way he lives in the world. And we see a couple different things happening in this passage. Early on, we saw God's nearness, that he is knowable, that, and that he relates to people, that he steps into mess. And then, and then now we see that God is powerful, 
Theologians would call this that he's transcendent, that he is large and that he can execute judgment for sin. And we see both of these come together in this passage. Abraham realized he gets to know God and that this God is powerful, just, and holy and does what is right. And he intercedes for Sodom in this passage because he knows that about God. Surely you won't wipe away the righteous with the wicked. And God is near to us in our brokenness, but he is also mighty and sovereign and Lord. And this passage is an invitation to hold both of those things together as we approach God. Because if we overemphasize one over against the other, we will miss it. God is sovereign and he rules with justice and he knows this about God so he enters this negotiation with God. If there are 50 righteous people, God's like, well, yeah, if there are 50 righteous people, I'll pass over it. And they, they keep arguing the 30, yeah, for 30, I'll do it. Back and forth, the negotiation goes down to 10. God, for 10 people, will you spare a whole city because there are 10 righteous people there? And God says, yeah, because he's a God of justice. He will not hurt the righteous on account of the wicked. And I think as we draw this to the close, what the text wants us to see is that God is near, he's knowable, he's perfectly just, and he is the giver, lover, and preserver of life. He shows that he's the giver of life because in an impossible situation, Sarah is gonna be able to conceive and bear a son. And we'll learn about that a little bit more later. He is the lover of life because as we've learned so far, he spared Hagar and Ishmael and he brought justice for Abel's life. He's the preserver of life because we see that he will not even wipe out a whole wicked city if there are 10 people found there who are righteous. And that this is our God. He's a God who gives life. He's a God who gives impossible life and a God who loves life. And as people who are following after this God who loves life, who loves justice, who is near but who is judge, we're called to be a people who live in relationship to him and in relationship to the world with that knowledge. Be people who stick up for justice and righteousness and people who point to a God who loves life. God is interested in giving life. All throughout the Bible we see God into the chaos of this world. He speaks life into existence, right? And then he preserves life with Noah. And then he preserves the life of Hagar. He keeps breathing life into death. And that is our God. And we have a God, friends, who does impossible things by bringing dead people back to life. If you want a proof case, if you want a case for God doing impossible things still, you need not look past your own heart. Because what does the Bible say about us? It says that when we were dead in our trespasses, and sins, he made us alive together with him 
in Christ Jesus. It wasn't something you could do on your own. It wasn't something someone else could talk you into. It was something that God, by his plans, spoke life into death and raised you with Christ. Friends, we live in a world where people need to hear the good news of the gospel, and it sometimes seems impossible that anyone would respond in faith, but we have been told that we have a God who does impossible things and gives new life to dead people. And we're called to be people who interact and engage with the world knowing that God is just, that God judges sin, and we're called to speak life into dark places and trust that God will give life to death. That is the good news of the gospel, that we have a God who loves to do this. And what you believe about him, if you believe that he's near, if you believe that he sees sin, if you believe that he's just, will shape the way you interact with your classmates. It'll shape the way you interact with your neighbors and your friends. We have a God who does impossible things so that we could know him.